Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Israeli troops encircle Gaza City as the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, departs for a trip to Israel and further into the Middle East. We will focus as well on steps that need to be taken uh, to protect civilians who are in a crossfire of, of Hamas's making. Uh, and we want to look at concrete steps that can be taken to better protect them. A new study reveals that the number of people living in disadvantaged areas stands at almost 200,000. We explore the widening wealth gap here in Ireland. Thus, from COVID-killing hair dryers to nuclear levels of overconfidence, we round up the highs and the lows of the UK COVID inquiry. After another day of heavy fighting in the Middle East, Israeli forces have encircled the Hamas stronghold of Gaza City. Uh, Michael D. Higgins has called for the EU to take a firmer stance over unacceptable violence against civilians in Gaza. Uh, we will be talking further about that, but for several weeks now, Matt Fry has reported from the region for Channel 4 News. And while there, he has shed light on the tragedies that have befallen both sides in this conflict. And Matt joins us now live from East Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us on the programme tonight, Matt. Um, I want to come to you first on what we are hearing from the IDF, the Israeli army advancing further into Gaza, encircling Gaza City. This, of course, after days of an expanding ground operation. What do we know about the situation on the ground now? Well, I think we have to take the IDF at their word that they've managed to encircle Gaza City. Uh, the question is really, what do they do now? Do they go further uh, towards the south of the Gaza Strip? What do they do with the maybe 200, 300,000 civilians who are still stuck in Gaza City, who either couldn't evacuate south or didn't want to evacuate south, some of whom will be used as human shields, as the Israelis claim by Hamas, some of whom would just be caught up in the appalling tragedy of that situation. Um, but I think that the operation, certainly for the Israelis, despite the losses of maybe some 20 men or so, they're telling us, has been relatively successful. But again, I mean, I discussed this with Israel's former foreign minister, Tsipi Livni, today in Tel Aviv. What happens next? What's your big plan for Gaza? How do you maintain Gaza as you know, a viable entity, whether it's eventually a fledgling state or just a giant refugee camp without storing up generations of resentment against Israel. And I think she, rather like everyone else in this country, frankly, doesn't have a clue what to do about it, nor do the Americans or the Egyptians or the United Nations. It will become an unwanted child of this conflict. 
Um, we're talking also about the civilian casualties that we are seeing and the number of Palestinian civilians now killed in Israeli airstrikes, according to the health ministry in Gaza, is estimated to stand at over 9,000, over 3,000 children among them. And we're also hearing from the UN that schools have again uh, been targeted, schools have been damaged, and indeed um, at least 20 people have been killed at a school that was used as a shelter in Jabalia. Indeed. I mean, this has been the story of the last, you know, awful three and a half weeks. The terrible massacre visited upon Israeli civilians on October the 7th, and then the rep retribution uh, visited upon Palestinians, some of them Hamas fighters, many of them innocent Palestinian civilians. And I think it's important to understand that there are two colliding narratives here. There's the narrative that much of the world, you know, including Ireland and Britain and America, is engaged in. And that is the narrative of innocent civilians in, in Gaza getting killed by Israeli airstrikes in an incredibly br blunt tool of going after these, you know, Hamas militants. And then there's a narrative that is informing Israel and is, is driving the emotions and the politics here. And that is of an unprecedented attack on Israeli civilians, a pogrom, if you like, conjuring up the worst memories of the Holocaust, you know, that basically has meant that this nation, wherever you stood on the peace process or the two-state solution in the past, I would say every single Israeli I spoke to is, is absolutely determined to go after Hamas and eliminate them as a threat. But then you ask them, you know, you, you can kill Hamas commanders, but you can't kill the idea behind Hamas. In fact, if anything, you might make it stronger as a result of what's going on right now. And then you're just met with a, a shrug of the shoulders and on they go and on the killing continues. And as I said before, no one really has, a, has an idea, a clue of what the day after looks like. And all of this um, comes ahead of a visit uh, to the region once again by the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, tomorrow. What do you take from his message as he left on the need to uh, protect civilians? Do you think the tone has changed from the US? It absolutely has, Claire, and this is really fascinating. I think, you know, he's made three visits now to the region in as many weeks. His first visit was rhetorically all about, you know, the, the right of Israel to defend itself. You have to go after these terrorists and Hamas, and we're right behind you, and we're going to send two aircraft carrier groups to the Mediterranean in case Hezbollah gets any ideas of, of attacking you in the north, etc. And very quietly in that first visit, Antony Blinken said, we, we are with you for what you do, but how you do it needs to be carefully calibrated. And the president weighed in and said, do not commit the mistakes that we committed after 9-11 in the United States. That was a very clever way of kind of asking the Israelis to reflect on their position and reflect on what happens next. Except for the fact that on the evidence of the bombing in Gaza, not much reflection actually took place. And remember, the IDF was caught very short by, you know, allowing Hamas to, to enter southern Israel. Mm. The response time of the IDF, which is supposed to be one of the best armies in the region, was very slow. Many people died because they were too slow. And so they're making up, they're compensating for their past failures, as indeed is the very embattled and extremely unpopular Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. But for the Americans turning up here again tomorrow morning, they're not just worried about, you know, what happens in Gaza, what happens to the civilians. They're worried that the death of so many thousands of civilians in Gaza will be the fuse 
that lights up the Arab streets, that causes real insecurity in the region and could possibly slither people into a wider conflict, even if they don't want to go there. So we had more attacks from Hezbollah tonight, more than before in the last few weeks. You've got the leader of Hamas, the political leader, flying from Doha to Iran to have talks with the Iranians. We, we think the Iranians don't want a wider conflict, but they may not be able to avoid it. So there's this sort of horrible specter that people are sliding into something which they don't want that might, at the end of the day, be unavoidable. Matt Fry, Europe editor and presenter with Channel 4 News. Thank you for joining us from East Jerusalem tonight. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Claire. Well, I'm now joined by Senior Crisis Advisor with Amnesty International, Donatella Rivera. Um, thank you for joining us on the programme, uh, Donatella. You are investigating war crimes and human rights abuses. How do you view what's been happening in the region now? Where is your focus lying as you, as you conduct investigations and, uh, 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 in the area in light of attacks in, in recent days? I mean, first of all, I would just like to pick up from where Matt left it and, and to say that uh, Secretary of State Blinken, President Joe Biden um, should realize that if they persist in the attitude of their predecessors of allowing absolute impunity and not pursuing accountability, it is very unlikely that they would get a different result than the one obtained by their predecessor. So, yeah, it is going to be further escalation, more violence, because impunity fuels the, the exact sort of abuses that we've been seeing, the violation of international humanitarian law that we've been seeing from the first day. So. Um, more than 8,000 people uh, killed. Most of them are civilian. More than 3,000 of them are children. Uh, are these all mistakes? Are these the results of a policy where Israeli um, army uh, took every precaution that they could? Nobody would believe that. It isn't so. It is quite clear that... Um, quite a number of the attacks that have been carried out have been unlawful in that they failed to meet the principles uh, of proportionality and distinctions, cornerstones of international humanitarian law. Not everything is allowed in war. Uh, and, and what we're seeing in Gaza is, is, a, is a clear example of much which is being done that it isn't allowed under international humanitarian law, both in terms of uh, simply dropping leaflets and telling a million people you've got to leave North Gaza and, and saying if you don't, basically you will be presumed to be terrorist and Gaza is going to be the, the whole of North of Gaza, half of Gaza, one of the most densely populated territory in the world, is going to be treated like a free fire zone. Uh, and, and that's not acceptable. And... Uh, Donatella, specifically. The community of not telling them. So it, it's, it's killings of civilians uh, that are occurring on a daily basis. Okay. is depriving the civilian population of the very mm. basic humanitarian aid and supplies that are necessary for daily survival, for the functioning of hospital, to give life-saving treatment to patients. That is not allowed ever under any conditions. Um, civilians must be protected. There is no excuse and with that, for, um, so, sorry, for that. Sorry, I just want to uh, specifically get on to the point, Donatella, about evidence that Amnesty has about the use of white phosphorus being used over Gaza and Lebanon. Um, wh wh where is the evidence there? 
Uh, and what are your concerns about that? It has, of course, alleged to have been used in, in, in past wars as well by Israel. Yes, so the evidence comes from the fact that um, Israeli soldiers both near the Gaza border and near the Lebanon borders have been seen with uh, white phosphorus artillery shells. Uh, and the fact that um, artillery shells have been seen being airbursted and deploying white phosphorus over Gaza City on 10th, 11th of October, uh, over the Zaytun neighborhood and over the port of, of Gaza, the port area, and in South Lebanon over Duheira and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and villages along the border. And actually, in, in, in the videos and the images that have come out uh, have been geolocated and verified by our team of, uh, of colleagues in, in our evidence lab. Uh, and in Lebanon, we've also spoken to uh, medical personnel who treated nine people who had been impacted. Um, this is not the first time that white phosphorus was used. Uh, in Gaza, white phosphorus was used extensively during the 2008-2009 cast-led operation uh, of the Israeli army. At that time, uh, quite a lot of people, uh, civilians, died of their burns because while medics uh, did not uh, recognize immediately that the burns were from white phosphorus and at the same time the Israeli authorities were denying that it was white phosphorus so there was a delay in treating those patients and white phosphorus needs to be treated white phosphorus burns need to be treated in a particular way because the white phosphorus burns feed on air and and so the particles just go deeper into the flesh all the way down to the bone and and you know that's how you know people die and and pe a lot of people died so at the moment we have not seen as of now evidence of people civilians who have been harmed by white phosphorus in, in Gaza, but we're also aware of the fact that the health system is in absolute dire conditions. Yes. And so, um, you know, we, we don't know that there aren't any. We just right. haven't heard about it yet. But we're very okay. concerned, of course, about the use of, of, uh, of such weapons in civilian areas. And all of this, of course, forming part of your investigations in the region. Senior Crisis Advisor with Amnesty International, Donatello Rivera, thank you for joining us on the programme tonight. Thank you. Well, here to discuss all this further is Fianna Fáil MEP Billy Kelleher and Professor of Eurasian Studies at Maynooth University, John O'Brennan. And down the line is Michael Dickinson, uh, Executive Director of Stand With Us. Israel, an international education organization that supports Israel and fights anti-Semitism. Thank you for joining us all on the program. Um, John, to come to you first, Israeli troops now at the height of battle, according to Benjamin Netanyahu. How do you assess what we're seeing now and what Israel intends to achieve? Well, what we saw on the 7th of October was absolutely horrific. What has followed it, as Matt and Donatella have testified to, has been equally horrific. I honestly don't think, Claire, there is a strategy that the Israeli government is pursuing, a meaningful mm -hmm. strategy. I think what they have done is to react in the moment, emotionally, because we should understand that the Israeli people have never experienced anything like this before. It is their 9-11, their Pearl Harbor. Nonetheless, that does not give Israel justification to do the kind of things that they have been doing with all of the extraordinary loss of life that Donatella has described. And if the 
if the aim and the strategy is to get Hamas out of Gaza, firstly, they've tried it before, it's never worked. Secondly, you cannot engage in the kind of um, so-called surgical strikes that they claim to be making mm -hmm. and that they claim are being successful without killing huge numbers of civilians. We know that not just from previous iterations of this conflict, but also from what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. It's simply not possible to do. We are going to see huge numbers of Palestinians lose their lives in the weeks to come. And even at the end of that process, there's no guarantee of any kind that Hamas will be eliminated. Uh, Michael, I want to bring you in at this point. Stand with us. Um, you describe yourself as an international education organisation that supports Israel and fights anti-Semitism. You're joining us from Jerusalem tonight. We do appreciate it. Do you accept that there is growing concern about Israel's actions now, the bombardment of Gaza and the growing civilian casualties we're seeing that is threatening your movement and your aim, I suppose, for global support, which is looking for people to stand with Israel? Well, thank you for having me. I, I listened to Donatella speak on behalf of Amnesty International, and there was one word that was missing from anything she said. She didn't mention the word Hamas. So here she is saying she's going to be investigating Israel, and yet she had not one word for the terrorists who brought this about. Um, of course, October the 7th was terrible. I lived through it. Um, at 6.30 in the morning on our holiday, the equivalent of Christmas Day, uh, we were heading to the bomb shelter with Israelis all over the country while 3,000 Hamas terrorists were infiltrating, massacring, burning people alive, burning babies alive, beheading them, uh, raping women en masse, and then kidnapping them, throwing them onto trucks and taking them into Gaza. Another thing that was, met, was not mentioned by Donatella is that currently 240 citizens, civilians, uh, men, women, children, Holocaust survivors, elderly, disabled babies are kidnapped within Gaza. So Israel may be uh, considered to be emotional. I think we should all be emotional about this. It should be an outcry. And it's an absolute disgrace that Donatella didn't mention one word about those poor people for four weeks in Hamas captivity in Gaza. Michael, That's why Michael, this I is think it's, it's accepted that there is condemnation globally for the Hamas attack of October 7th mm. and the deep trauma that was visited on Israel and, and the death of 1,400 um, people there. But can the bombardment of Gaza and the killing of civilians there make Israel safe? Do people in Israel believe that to be true? I think people in Israel think that the future for Palestinians and Israelis will be better without Hamas. And unfortunately, Israel is fighting a war that no Western nation has really fought before. Of course, uh, the West routed ISIS, but Hamas are so embedded within Gaza, they've taken international aid and spent it on a network of tunnels. So they're un right underneath uh, hospitals and schools. And I've visited schools well, in southern Israel now, that have been rocketed. Sorry, just to interrupt you on that, because we are sure. hearing now that the international aid that is so desperately needed in the region, we heard from Mike Ryan of the WHO, that it is simply not getting through, that hospitals are having to shut their operations right now. Is that what people in Israel want to see happen? No, and dozens of trucks of aid have gone through today uh, into I Gaza. Israelis want, Israelis want Palestinians to be living and free and democratic and be in peace with us. Mm. And that's what we could see in a future without Hamas. Unfortunately, Hamas embed themselves, hiding themselves under hospitals and schools, forcing Israelis to go in. Don't forget, Israel doesn't want to be in Gaza. They left Gaza for peace 18 years ago. The Palestinians have had 18 years to build a society there, flourishing and free with full international aid, 
that Hamas, an organization that has 1.5 billion at its fingertips, instead has yeah. spent it there's on also, terror. It, so it is worth saying, that, it is worth saying though, isn't it, that there's also been a sea and an air blockade on Gaza that, you know, it has been described as an open-air prison for a reason. Well, there's been a blockade to avoid weaponry going in, and Hamas proved this week why that needed to happen. And by the way, there was a blockade by Egypt as well, so they obviously mm. felt the same way. But humanitarian aid can get in. No Hamas, no blockade, no war. It's as simple as that. And the world should be calling for Hamas's surrender and the immediate release of 244 people who are currently in Hamas clutches in Gaza. All right. Um, um, just... Um... I want to bring you in here, Billy, on this, because we've heard the views of Michael there, one Israeli organisation, views that would be reflected by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's government. So how does international pressure influence the trajectory of this war? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be doing that. It hasn't been doing it for quite some time. I, I think that the international community have been absolving them themselves of responsibility in advance of the horrific events of October the 7th. The two-state solution that has been proposed for a number of years has been flitter, flittered away. Um, Israel has consistently undermined the two-state solution. And listening to Michael here, I mean, let's be honest, there is no Hamas, strong Hamas organisation in the West Bank, yet Israel is continually encroaching with illegal settlements and undermining the two-state solution. So, I mean, you know, you, you, you can't say that they, they want to live in peace and harmony and at the same time have illegal settlements, bulldozing villages, pushing Palestinians further out of their homelands. So, I mean, the two-state solution has been undermined mm -hmm. by Israel. Unfortunately, the reality is that Hamas also don't want a two-state solution because they want to extinguish Israel. And we have to be okay. conscious of the fact that Israel has a right to defend itself. But the thing that differentiates Hamas, or should differentiate Hamas from Israel, is that Hamas are a terrorist organisation. And we hold a higher threshold to democratic countries to abide by the rule of law and international law. And that's the difference. And we expect Israel uh, to comply with international law, the Geneva Conventions, that okay. they're not attacking civilians and that they're not undermining that basic concept of proportionality when it comes uh, to defending themselves. Do you want to respond to that, Michael, if you heard that there? about upholding international yeah, I mean, law first, in this regard. First of all, I just also would like to respond to the previous comment about the speakers talking about white phosphorus, which Israel has categorically denied using. Look, the truth is that, yes, a two-state solution with two peaceful parties would be a future for all of us here in the Middle East. Um, but there has not been one peace agreement that the Palestinian Authority has agreed to on multiple times at the peace table. So. If they would come to the table and say, yes, agree to peace, they would find a ready partner. In the meantime, Israel has made peace with several Arab countries and was about to make peace with Saudi Arabia when Iran provoked Hamas to carry out this attack. Okay. So I do believe okay. in a peaceful solution and I hope that that will be the case, but it takes two to tango. Just on the white phosphorus, Israel has claimed that it uses incendiaries only as a smokescreen and not to target civilians, but it hasn't specifically denied using white phosphorus in the past. Just to clarify on that, because yeah, I do it think it's categorically important. categorically denied using it in this conflict, yes. Um, uh, just to bring you in, John, on this, um, Hamas won't come to the table, um, according to Michael, and again, reflective of what the Israeli government um, will say in all of this. But I mean, where does the idea, because it was mentioned by Anthony Blinken again about this two-state solution, two mm. states for two peoples, and that's ultimately what the US wants to see here. How far away are we from that? Well, the terrible predicament here is that there are no partners for peace. 
Hamas is, as Billy said, entirely dedicated to the annihilation of Israel. But on the other side, we have an ultranationalist Israeli government under Benjamin Netanyahu that is absolutely deeply unpopular with its own people, hundreds of thousands of Israelis on the streets in recent months protesting against them, and that I think has reacted in part because of that opposition that it has faced in the way that it has in recent weeks. We have no partners for peace here at all, and I fear that this is going to get much worse, potentially cataclysmically worse, before it actually gets better. And we should also remember there's a long history here where over 75 years, Israel has been the principal aggressor. In 1948, Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 100,000 Palestinian people were shoved off the land that they had lived in for generations. Mm -hmm. They had title deeds in many cases from the, the British uh, mandate period, from the Ottoman period. It didn't matter. They were shoved off their land just as they're being shoved off their land in the West Bank aggressively and violently in recent weeks. Uh, Michael, briefly, you, uh, you'd, like to, you'd like to come in and respond to that, what we've heard from John there. Yeah, it's a mischaracterization of history. In 1948, seven Arab armies invaded Israel, trying to wipe them off the map in the intervening years since the Holocaust. So that's not what happened. They waged a war and they lost. You don't get to have it both ways. Since then, Israel has offered several peace deals to the Palestinians, each one of them they've rebuffed. Look, I am raising kids in this country. I want them to live in peace with their Palestinian neighbors. In my kids' school graduation, they sang a song of peace. When Palestinian kids are singing those same songs in their schools and educated to love Jews as we love our neighbours, there will be peace. Well, what do you say, just briefly, just to return to what, what actually Billy mentioned there about while all the gaze is, is, is on Gaza and what's happening there, what we are seeing in the West Bank, where we have Palestinian families being evicted from their homes by extremist settlers there, is that something that you would condemn and that people in Israel can condemn? Yeah, I would absolutely condemn any violence towards Palestinians on a civil level. And they've been acted against by the police and by the army. And nothing like that should happen. Our future is entwined. We both live in this place. We both have claims to this place. We should be able to make peace. Unfortunately, we've not seen that happen from either the Palestinian Authority and certainly not Hamas. But I do believe that without Hamas, we'll have a better groundwork for a peace between our peoples. Uh, briefly, Billy, just to come back to you, Michael D. Higgins issuing another statement tonight, another intervention, uh, repeating his concern about the ongoing loss of life, but talking about international bodies, including the European Union and members of the broader international community, who remain silent or allow their messages to have ambiguous construction, have a responsibility to commit to vindicating international law. Um, a swipe at the EU. Uh, do you agree with what he's had to say? 
Well, I've been critical of the EU myself in terms of what they stand for with regard to the uh, Middle East crisis uh, in advance of the uh, invasion of um, Gaza itself. Uh, I just believe that Europe, you know, because there's a historical context here, let's be honest, Germany and some other countries will not go down the road of condemning Israel when they're on the wrong side, simply because of the historical context. It is something that I have said to people uh, in, in Parliament, that the guilt of the Holocaust can't absolve them from their responsibility to ensure that we address the issues of today with regard to the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And we have to move beyond that. And yes, the European Union has been slow, but there's not one voice in the European Union on this issue. That is the challenge. I would say, Claire, also, I've been very critical of the president sometimes for his interventions, but here he's absolutely in lockstep with the government. The more important intervention today was the Tonishta. It was the strongest statement we have seen from any European foreign minister throughout this three weeks. He is absolutely standing up robustly and saying Israel has to be held to account under international all law. All right, that is all we have time for on that. My thanks to John O'Brennan, to Donatella Rivera and to Michael Dixon. And after the break, we get the latest as the accused Yosef Puska in the Ashley Murphy trial takes the stand. Stay with us. Welcome back. Joseph Puska, the man on trial accused of murdering Offaly school teacher Ashling Murphy, took to the stand today. Well, earlier I caught up with our courts correspondent, Deborah Naylor. I started by asking her what the jury heard when Puska took the stand. Well, not a lot of evidence this afternoon, Clep, because the 33-year-old uh, Slovakian national, he was only in the witness box in courtroom 13 for around half an hour this afternoon, giving evidence through an interpreter. But his barrister, Michael Bowman, told him to explain to the jury his recollection of events um, from January 12th, 2022, the day he said of um, Ashleen Murphy's tragic murder. Now, the defendant said that he left his home in Mukla at around uh, 11.30 that morning. He said he left on his bicycle, made his way towards Tullamore Town, and he told the jury uh, that he was trying to find his brother who had gone with his wife to the dentist. And he was specifically asked about a woman who was out walking her dog, whom we now know to be a woman called Amory Kelly, who was already given, given evidence in the trial. And it was Putios of Pushka, that um, Ms Kelly was of the view that he had followed her that day, but he said that that was not his intention at all. And he agreed uh, on CCTV footage that he did show him behind her, but he said he had no bad intention to follow anyone that day. And that summed up the evidence that he gave today, and he will be back in the witness box tomorrow. Before taking to the witness box, the court heard details of his interviews with Garthi after his arrest. Yeah, Mr. Pushka was arrested on the 18th of January last year. He was brought to Tullamore Garda Station. He was interviewed a total of five times uh, between then and the following morning. Uh, he told the court that he was originally from Slovakia, that he came to Ireland, he said, sometime in around 2013. He said that he moved uh, to Tullamore uh, in 2015 and spoke a little bit about his, I suppose, his life in Tullamore with his five children. He said he gave up work several years 
years ago and described uh, due to a back injury and described since then having a pension. Uh, his first two interviews, they took place on the day of Ashley Murphy's funeral. But when asked uh, by detectives if he knew Ms Murphy, he said that he didn't know her, um, he didn't see her, he said that he had never met her, he didn't know who she was and he insisted that he didn't know anything about the murder. Now, when shown on two occasions a photograph of Ashley Murphy uh, during those interviews, that he said he didn't recognise her and he, he told the trial today that he hadn't actually seen her before. Um, he identified himself on CCTV, but when CCTV footage of Ashley Murphy uh, walking along the canal at five to three uh, on the day she was killed. When that was shown to him, he said he didn't know who she was and he repeatedly said that he did not meet her on the 12th of January last year. And specifically, we heard what detectives asked Josef Buska in his final interview before his arrest. Yes, in his fifth and final interview, well, a number of um, inferences were put to him and Joseph Pushka was warned that his failure or refusal to provide an explanation in each case, that that could be used to support other evidence against him. So he was asked about his presence at the location where Ashley Murphy was killed along a stretch of the Grand Canal. He was asked about a bike found at the scene, which Garthi said could be linked to him forensically and through CCTV footage. He was also asked to account for scratches on his forehead, on his hands, on the day after Ashleen Murphy's murder. And he was finally asked to account uh, for DNA, uh, his DNA found underneath her fingernails after stating that he didn't know her or he had never met her. Now, in relation to the bike, uh, Mr Pushka told detectives he wasn't giving them an explanation for this. And in relation uh, to the other instances, he said he wasn't going to comment. So that uh, summed up his final interviews and marked the end of the prosecution case on week three of this trial. All right, Deborah Naylor. Deborah, thank you for bringing us up to date on the very latest from this case. Thank you. Now, a new study has revealed that nearly 200,000 people in Ireland are living in very or extremely disadvantaged areas. This marks an increase of over 50,000 in the past seven years. Well, here to discuss the long-term implications of these figures is uh, still with us, MEP Billy Kelleher and co-founder of Spark, single parent acting for the rights of kids, Louise Bayliss. Louise, you're welcome along to the programme tonight. We've seen a jump of over 50,000 in the number of people living in disadvantaged areas, but we're also seeing a jump in the number of people experiencing extreme deprivation. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, it's looking at two, I suppose, different... Uh, areas there, but those who are already in poverty are falling deeper into it. Is yeah, that what we're I, I think that's it. And and the air, the number of people experiencing extreme disadvantage or disadvantaged is, is rising. And like even last year, there's there's currently 90,000 children living in consistent poverty in Ireland, in a wealthy country, 90,000 children living in consistent poverty. We know who those families are and we know how to help those children. We also have 3,904 children living in emergency accommodation today. 23% increase in family homelessness in the last year. Since the ending of the eviction ban at the end of March, from the 1st of April, when eviction bans, non-fault eviction bans came into place, over 75% of the families entering emergency accommodation are lone parent families. So we know who these families are, we know who these people are experiencing it um, and we just see this increase in deprivation and we what we're seeing is from that Pubble report is that you know most of the country which is great is going back to pre-Celtic Tiger mm -hmm. back to the affluence levels of 2006 but as you pointed out 200,000 are now still ex experiencing 
higher levels of inequality. And, you know, there's something strange. Inequality is, is a very hard thing to do, and all the research has shown that's much harder than living in poverty. You know, back in 2010, 2012, when we're all living in poverty, you know, we're all experiencing it's awful time, it's horrible. But when children see that inequality and they know they're living in emergency accommodation and other families are able to go back onto their two European continental holidays a year, it's very um, demoralising for children. And we have children who aren't allowed in certain doors and hotels because they're in the emergency accommodation room. All of this mm -hmm. is just breaking down social cohesion. Um, and if, if we're looking for society with social inclusion, reducing crime debts, we cannot treat families and, and that inequality to continue to rise. Um, and yet we know, as is said consistently, this country is awash with money, Louise. So do you believe that it is being spent uh, in the right way in terms of targeting the inequality that we're seeing? Well, well we have 43.5% of lone parent families are living, um, experiencing deprivation, 43.5%. We know the answers to that, and why is that not happening? For instance, last year in the budget, now there were some positive moves mm -hmm. in the budget this year, I will acknowledge, I think it's fabulous that the child benefit is extended for children aged 18 to let them go through their sixth year. But last year, for instance, when we look at when the country was going through an extreme cost of living crisis, we had child benefit. Um, and there were two types of child benefit. Child benefit, which is universal, and then you have the uh, qualified child increase for families who are living on social welfare. We increased the qualified child increase last year by 104 euro. We increased the, the universal payment by 240. Mm -hmm. Why would we give something that costs so much money to people who may not necessarily need it, and yet we gave 104 euro a year to the poorest children. You know, those type of decisions that are being made yeah. are exasperating that. And that's why that Pubble report is, is a concrete evidence of the policy decisions that we said, please don't make. And now we have the proof of they failed. Would you acknowledge that, Billy, that people are being left behind? Like the average income in Ireland has risen by more than 4%. Uh, average income for first-time buyers of new homes is over €90,000. Um, and then we've got very low unemployment rates. But there are people being left behind here and the inequality gap, gap is growing. Uh, they are. And when, you know, when the economy is going well and there's a lot of growth and employment, um, that gap is widening and it shows that we have to actually tailor our policies. I think the, the discussion around universality... And have we? Uh, well, I mean, you know, governments are bringing forward policies. Uh, sometimes they are not targeted enough at those that specifically need it because they're based on universality. Uh, what this, specifically this, about that yeah, payment? That, that's just, I think, yeah. for lo lone parents, isn't well, it? No, it's for anybody who's for dependent anybody. on social welfare. Yeah. So it's for so children it, living so in the social welfare. It is welfare. quite targeted Very in targeted. itself. Yes, but I'm just making the point that... The, the policies that are even targeted aren't uh, lifting those people out of poverty, out of deprivation but that was, that and wasn't social targeted, exclusion. Really. That, that payment, you know, when you're giving 240 but to every child. Making, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you have yeah. to target it to those that most need it. What the Pubble report is showing is that we have to start tailoring our policies to be more specific to individual cohorts or groups of people. Did we Lone not parents, know this? For example, I mean, did the government not know this already? Well, they, they did, but I mean, for many years there wasn't the resources. We now have the resource and it's still not working. But I mean, just with regard to lone parents, I mean, child, child care facilities, supports for child, for, for child care, access to child care, and then access to education. There's also the barriers we have. This had consistently has been a problem. We can't have cliff edges in terms of people when they go back to employment, losing uh, supports, uh, losing benefits. 
it's like that particular area still is a problem where you've cliff edge uh, loss of benefit. Uh, and so I, I think there has to be a revisiting to look at those specific 2,000 uh, individuals and, and, and why they are not moving out of poverty, uh, moving out of deprivation uh, mm. and being slipstreamed along with the rest of the economy. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, this is information we had and we would work closely, like I work in Focus Ireland, we work very closely with other members of the National One Parent Family Alliance, for instance. That's 10 national organisations dealing with children living in poverty in low parent yes. families. We met with the government, we met with the Department of Social Protection and we said, look, this is what we think should happen. And nothing last year, not one of our actions happened. And that was very difficult pressing for us and we knew that this would increase to it. You know, we don't understand and we, we actually met post post um, budget and we met with the Department of Social Protections and we said why were these decisions made? We gave you the evidence and what we were told from the Department of Social Protection is they are decisions are evidence informed not evidence based but they're politically based. And from my point of view, that is very cynical, that decisions that are based that? politically. And, and, and that's why I, I really believe that marginalised communities do not vote and they are not seen as a political contingent. Focus Ireland, we're hoping to launch a campaign specifically around getting homeless people, marginalised communities to vote because yeah. they're not seen as a political capital for politicians. So even with yeah. the evidence there, they're not being supported. Would you agree with that, Billy? You're not going to get a vote out of it. No, look, I mean... I represented the constituency that had huge challenges for many, many years. I just do not believe that the political uh, system uh, just makes a decision to ignore a cohort of people because they don't vote. If that is the case, our democracy is absolutely falling apart, mm. and I don't believe it is. I mean, what we have is we have now clear uh, empirical evidence mm. that the policies that are brought out in good faith in general, that are passed by the Aaron, are not having the impact that they should have on those that most need it. So we do need more targeted supports for those specifically. I referenced lone parents uh, is, is a key area where there's a large cohort of people that if we do not give support, simply can never transition, never transition from where right. they are to where we, they, they want to get to and where we should help them get to as well. Finally, Louise, I, I take it you would hope that I suppose these concrete findings and what's emerged from this report would now be you know, taken on by government if they look to the budget next year or any additional measures that need to be brought I, in. I would for, hope for so, but we've had uh, we've had at least 10 reports over the last 12 years outlining what was needed to be done. They've concrete evidence, they've empirical evidence and they've yeah. been ignored. So but, like, but, but Louise, we have, like in, 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 for example, in, in Limerick and in Cork and elsewhere, in Ballymun and elsewhere, we have had targeted regeneration programmes, for example, we in have, the areas of but housing. But they're failing and yes, you're not in, listening to the voice yes, of experts. In the, in, the area, in the area of housing, right. and what I'm saying is we have to put okay. further support in, in, into these particular areas to ensure that we have vibrant right. communities. We'll have, to, we'll have to leave that um, there for now, but my thanks to Louise Bayliss for joining us on the programme. Uh, coming up, we're going to recap some of the most shocking revelations from the UK COVID inquiry, so do stay with us. Welcome back. Hairdryers Hancock and Hoopers have dominated the UK COVID inquiry. Well, earlier I caught up with the Financial Times' Lucy Fisher and I started by asking her to give us some of the background as to why this inquiry was taking place. 
Well, look, this is um, a, a judge-led inquiry that seeks to get to uh, the bottom of uh, the systemic challenges thrown up by this crisis. This is ultimately um, a lesson learning exercise to help the state in future crises um, like future pandemics. It's not specifically about holding um, named individuals to account. It's looking more at the systemic um, decision-making, um, perhaps shortfalls across the state to ensure that that doesn't happen again in future. All right, so let's get to some of what we heard this week and, and uh, most lately today with the former Health Secretary Matt Hancock uh, coming in for criticism from Sir Simon Stevens, who's the former NHS chief executive. He said that um, Matt Hancock wanted to decide who should live and who should die should the NHS be overwhelmed. Yeah, look, you know, a very controversial uh, idea in the eyes of many. Um, Sir Simon Stevens suggesting that Matt Hancock felt it should be him as health secretary rather than the public, any medical professionals, taking what is ultimately, you know, a very serious um, ethical uh, debate and one that Simon Stevens said actually never got resolved. Luckily, it never came to pass that anyone had to make that kind of decision. It was a worry in the early days of the pandemic and at some of the worst spikes that, you know, the NHS would become overwhelmed and then, you know, a triaging system would have to come into play to decide who to treat and who to let go. Um, luckily, that didn't materialise, but certainly it's raised eyebrows that Matt Hancock claimed it should be him in charge of making fundamentally life and death decisions like that. And Lucy, uh, this week's hearings clearly focusing in on some key advisers. It doesn't portray the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson um, in the best light. He was slow to appreciate the gravity um, of the threat of COVID, um, according to evidence we heard this week. Give us more details about that, because that generated an awful lot of headlines. Yeah, and look, in particular, a contested claim that in February 2020, he took 10 days off. It's been suggested by Dominic Cummings that that was to write a book about Shakespeare. That's been denied by Boris Johnson's um, spokesperson. But certainly it does appear that he uh, took some time away from Downing Street. It's claimed he didn't answer um, emails or receive red box submissions, uh, you know, on this crisis that was hurtling towards the country at that time. I think more broadly, what we've heard from Cummings, who of course was his de facto chief of staff before falling out spectacularly with Boris Johnson, uh, and what we've heard from Lee Kane, his former cons chief, again, someone he fell out with, is just this sense of a prime minister um, who was very unsuited to the task of governing the country, particularly in an emergency situation. They did describe him using this nickname, the shopping trolley, the idea that he oscillated, um, couldn't stick to any decision that he made, that he was heavily influenced by whoever he'd spoken to last. Uh, and as Lee Kane put it, you know, someone, a prime minister without the right skill set for this crisis. Yeah. And we also heard evidence of um, uh, Boris Johnson asking government scientists whether people could kill COVID using a special hairdryer uh, up their noses. Yeah, a, a sort of a claim that sort of um, understandably provoked a, a lot of sort of um, sniggers and sort of bemused responses. I mean, also, you know, in a more damning sense, I think the culture of Downing Street under his premiership has also come under the magnifying glass this week. In particular, some of the violent um, and misogynistic language used by Dominic Cummings, including in messages to the prime minister who, you know, didn't challenge the use of this kind 
kind of toxic and offensive um, language, all sorts of four-letter words that we can't um, repeat uh, live on air, um, and, and suggesting, you know, that um, Dominic Cummings, that he wanted to sort of drag the deputy cabinet secretary, a woman, Helen McNamara, out of the building, talked about needing to dodge stilettos from her. She, in turn, gave evidence this week um, and also talked about the culture in Downing Street being such that women were talked over, their input was ignored, and that led to lots of concrete policy outcomes. She claims that women will have died due to domestic violence because there weren't provisions in the national lockdowns made for um, victims of domestic abuse. She also points out, you know, confusion about access to abortions during the pandemic, confusion about pregnancy advice, you know, the horrific stories at the time of women forced to give birth um, alone while their husbands or partners were left waiting in the car park. So she makes the point that a lack of gender diversity around the table where decisions were being made during the pandemic led to these really um, specific, concrete, horrific outcomes for women across the population. OK, there we leave it. Whitehall editor with the Financial Times, Lucy Fisher, thank you for bringing us up to date um, on the very latest from the UK's COVID inquiry. Well, Fianna Fáil MEP Billy Kelleher is still with me. Very briefly, Billy, there's the inquiry there. We're hearing uh, details of it. Uh, when are we likely to see an inquiry in this country and questions asked about you know, what the state did during that period for us? Well, listening to the, the commentary there about Boris Johnson and, and Matt Hancock and others, it goes to show that we were very lucky with the mm -hmm. political leadership and the scientific advice that we were taking uh, dur during the, the COVID pandemic. And the figures would suggest that Ireland handled it very well. There should be some form of investigation for a look back to see what we could improve and where, where, okay. where there was mistakes made. But bear in mind, we were acting on a first-time advice. Um, you know, we were, uh, like every other country, okay. finding our way. But right. we did it exceptionally still, well still with good, important. strong leadership. Still yes, we must learn from that inquiry. Yes. Yes, um, and we should hear details about it, I think, uh, later on this month, um, if reports are to be believed. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Billy Kelleher, all our panellists. That's it from us. Take care and good night.